Every Wednesday from 2 to 3 p.m., WRFL invites you to office hours, real-world conversations with UK professors. No appointment necessary. Representing the 16 colleges across campus, Office Hours brings professors from every corner of UK to share their adventures in academia. Go beyond the syllabus and learn more about the people behind the research. We'll be demystifying higher education one interview at a time. Stop by every Wednesday afternoon. Office Hours is available online via wrfl.fm or on the airwaves on 88.1 FM, Radio Free Lexington. All right. We are, you are, we are, we all are listening to WRFL one <laughs> Radio Free Lexington. This is Brian, and this is the last office hours of the semester, the last office hours that will ever happen in this uh, studio, because RFL is moving, as we all know, hopefully by now, um, into the... Dungeon. Uh, I don't. You know. I don't want to like be the like naysayer <laughs> doomsday guy. That it is the dungeon it's of the, the Whitehall Whitehall yeah. classroom building basement <laughs> for the next few years while the new student center is being worked on, um, constructed, and perfected. That's right. But radio <laughs> will prevail of even in the dungeon. Absolutely. Yeah. You can't hold us down. No, you cannot. <laughs> uh, so, uh, without further ado, Sarah. Uh, Tell us what's going on and our, what, who our guests are and what's going to happen. Well, <laughs> I will do that. Our guests today are two generous souls who've joined us at the end of a busy semester. So thank you both for being here. We have Shannon Bell and Ty Borders here with us today. So if I'm just going to ask you both to just say a little bit about yourselves and, and then we'll get started. Shannon, you want to start? Sure. So um, I'm an assistant professor of sociology here at the University of Kentucky. And I'm also a co-director of the Greenhouse Living Learning Program, um, which is a residential college for freshmen who are interested in environment and sustainability issues um, on campus. So. Mm-hmm. Great. Great. Ty? I'm a professor and also the chair of the Department of Health Management and Policy in the College of Public Health. And I've been here about two and a half years. I'm teaching an undergraduate course for the first time ever. Um, on the healthcare really? system this semester. Yeah, it's been a lot of fun. Good. Although my students have an exam tomorrow at 8 a.m., <laughs> so they may not think it's so much fun. And um, I also teach some graduate courses on the healthcare system and also on health services research. Mm-hmm. Fantastic. Well, part of the reason um, that we have you here together um, on this show is that last month the two of you were honored uh, with awards from. Um, the Department of Writing, Rhetoric, and Digital Media for your work as writers. Um, and so part of what we did that day um, at, at the actual award ceremony is we talked to students and faculty both um, to kind of just have them talk about writing. So we also want to, two of you to do that as well, just a little bit, before we kind of get more specific into your research and, and your interests. Um, so... The two questions that we asked were, um, why is writing important to you personally? So um, either one of you can jump right in on that. Well, writing is, is really important to me. It's my primary I guess, medium for spreading ideas in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, and most of my, I know I'm not supposed to talk about research yet, but it's... <laughs> it's okay, it's not. okay. We'll, we'll give you a pass. <laughs> All right. It's very closely tied to my writing, obviously. Um, I, the research I do is really focused on environmental injustices, um, particularly 
um, within central Appalachia, within this region, um, around the coal industry and energy extraction more generally, our energy production and, and natural resource extraction. And I, writing is a way for me to share the stories of the people mm-hmm. that, um, that are affected by these injustices and um, who I interview and, and work with. Mm-hmm. So um, it's, it's very important to me for being able to share with the world what's going on. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And Ty? Well, first, let me say I, I am really proud I received this award from the Department of Writing, Rhetoric, and Digital Studies um, because writing is important uh, for me in my career, but also personally. And I think it was sort of self-reflecting on why I enjoy writing. And, mm-hmm. and when I was, you know, when I was a child, I didn't really like it that much, to be honest. I was more interested in math and science and art. But as I've become a professor, and even in graduate school, as I started to study things that I was interested in, you know, much like Shannon, um, I found that writing was, it was fun. And also, it's a, it's a way in which I, you know, I think, thinking back to my interest in art when I was a, a little kid, it's producing something. So I actually get to produce yeah. a product. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I get some enjoyment out of that for mm-hmm. some reason. Mm-hmm. It's um, you know, different from going to a meeting or things like that, which I do as a <laughs> department chair, which can be interesting and fun, but it's, it's something I can produce, which is a, a product. And then also, um, of course, it is a way for me to translate the results from research to other academics or people on health management and policy. And I don't really necessarily expect that I will change the world in terms of health and health care, but if one person thinks about things a little bit differently, then I consider that a success. So mm-hmm. if one person reads my paper and thinks about something in a slightly different way, then I think that's good for me personally. Mm-hmm. And of course, as academics, we have to publish. Absolutely. Um, for our careers, it's really important to... Um, to do this. And then uh, to follow that up, uh, the second part of the question is, why is writing important beyond you in the world? Well, in the research that I do, it's very applied. So um, I have an interdisciplinary degree, and I took a lot of courses in sociology, um, economics, epidemiology. And the work that we do is supposed to have some sort of relevance to the delivery of healthcare or the management of healthcare organizations or or to public policy. So to that extent, um, one of the points of the papers that I write is to inform those types of individuals when they're trying to make decisions. And um, of course, this is a really important um, field for, for, for the American public because we spend so much on healthcare Really, and Absolutely, we have a lot yeah. of health problems, so we're trying to um, find new ways to organize and deliver personal health care as well as public health services to try to mm-hmm. improve the population's health. And um, again, you know, I, I think I, I think the collection of knowledge that I and others write about can make a difference. I don't try to pretend that what I do necessarily by myself makes a difference, but together. The collective knowledge that we um, that we provide, I, I think, may may affect the the decisions that others make. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, I think that writing is one of the main ways that ideas are spread in the world, and one of the ways that we can 
be connected to people in very different places from us. Mm -hmm. And so um, I think that knowing how to write and knowing how to effectively communicate through the written medium is is just a very critical skill for people to have. Um, And so I I, I think it's an important... Yeah. class for students to excel in and, and, right, and, yeah. <laughs> and skill to have. Yeah. And it's really interesting and, um, you know, supportive of WORD, W-R-D, the Writing Rhetoric mm-hmm. Digital Studies Program, to recognize, you know, other other writing. I, I know mm-hmm. that they've done the awards for, for student writing, for teaching, um, but to reach out to other people in the community at UK mm-hmm. and recognize the scholarship that's being mm-hmm. done, the writing that's being done, is... It acknowledges that. So I think a lot of students don't necessarily realize how much writing their professors have to do mm-hmm. all the time. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Is that something you talk about with your students when you teach, is your own work or your own writing process? I try to talk to them a little bit about it um, in, in the teaching. It, it is funny because students really do, a lot of students don't, don't um, know that their professors are also scholars, producing scholarship right. in the world. And so it is, um, it is kind of funny when, so I, my first book came out in 2013, you know, when I use bits and pieces of it in a class, my students are usually surprised that, oh, you wrote a book, you know, I thought you just taught, you know. <laughs> you live in this building. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I mean, we, they, professors serve an important role in their, in their classroom world, so to, to kind of think of them doing other things outside of that is not always in their in yeah. their imagination. How about you, Ty? Do you talk about writing with your, maybe with your graduate students? Yeah, student? I, I think students get it, especially at the graduate level, yeah. because then, well, of course, doctoral students need to be engaged in research and writing. But even in the undergraduate course I'm teaching this semester, and I'm admittedly a novice, that's the first mm-hmm. undergraduate course I've taught, I've had students um, do some brief... Um, Reports and these have been uh, have also involved some interpretation of data, so they've been rather applied. And I think that they, one of my points is just trying to convey to students that they need to be able to um, interpret information and also convey it through writing to others. Mm-hmm. And as Shannon said, that's really you know this, this is still the the most um, important mechanism for communi- communicating ideas to a wide audience. And no matter what kind of career or employment somebody pursues, he or she will have to engage in writing. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think the students value that, and uh, maybe the trick is if we can figure out how to make them interested in what they write about. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And, um, otherwise, you know, we, I, I think the best approach is not to try to force something on students or others, but to try to get them interested in the, in the topic. Mm-hmm. And that can be challenging sometimes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the work is so much better. It's easier to read. Mm-hmm. It's more fun for them to produce if there is some investment in that. Mm-hmm. Do do your students get to design their own projects, their own topics, pick their own topics and things like that, Shannon, in your classes? Yeah, um, we. I also teach, um, before, so this is my first year co-directing Greenhouse, and, oh, and most right. of my teaching this year has been with Greenhouse, but um, but I also regularly teach um, sociology of gender and um, research methods and environmental justice um, and public sociology. And in all of those classes, I try to, and those, at those are at the undergraduate level. I also do occasionally teach at the graduate level um, in inequalities in the environment class. But at the undergraduate level, I always try to have my students engage in some sort of real world um, mm-hmm. social problem 
doing some sort of exercise final project where they are um, trying to communicate about the social injustice with the wider community, mm-hmm. university community, or, or even beyond. Um, and I think those, those projects are the most meaningful part of the entire class. That's what where students get the most out of those exercises. They're the most motivated mm-hmm. to do a good job right. of writing and, to, um, and using other um, forms of, you know, of communicating with the world. I, I think that um, it's just critical to have students not just be um, absorbing book learning, but right. to also be using that in some mm-hmm. meaningful way. And producing knowledge themselves, right, through, Absolutely. through the writing. Mm-hmm. Can you think of any examples of subjects, or can you share any of their projects with us? Sure. So um, when I teach sociology of gender, I have my students um, take action against a gender injustice. And okay. so. I've done this project for um, for a number of semesters, and s- during the course of the semester, you know, we learn about a lot of really depressing, overwhelming sure. <laughs> aspects of um, the gender system and inequalities. Um, you know, from sex trafficking to um, date rape to um, mistreatment of, of women um, in in developing countries, and so I the students get to select what gender related injustice they. Um, want to kind of focus on for their final project. And then um, they have to do both an educational campaign to raise awareness, but then they also have to take action by um, either writing a letter to the editor or writing, you know, creating a petition or doing some sort of action that's asking for a particular policy change or or some other change Mm -hmm. in society. And... um, and then the students do final projects in class and present what they did. And again, like those those experiences, I think, are some of the most powerful um, for me as a professor. I've learned so much from the students and, and their passion for di- different causes that Absolutely, they picked up yeah. on during the semester. But also for them, I mean, I've had such amazing feedback for, from a lot of the students that that's just really been an empowering experience mm-hmm. for them. Um, not only just because they're they get very invested in the cause, but also because this is, you know, a, an opportunity for them to realize that they have power to um, yes, to right. shape the yes. world around them and to educate people around mm-hmm. them and to um, to write a letter to a legislator or to um, write a letter to the editor and, and that people will listen to them. Mm-hmm. That's excellent. This is a perfect time for a short break, so we'll be back with more on Office Hours. All right, some blind William McTell uh, on WRFL 88.1, Radio Free Lexington on Office Hours. That was uh, Writing Paper Blues, which I believe some people may have at the moment as you're scrambling <laughs> to turn in sure your, last, your last final papers mm-hmm, out there. Mm-hmm. Um, and we have two fine guests on that who have been talking a little bit about um, writing in general and and uh, in some of their own research and work. Uh, and Sarah's going to continue that talk. Yeah, we're here with Shannon Bell and Ty Borders, two professors here at UK who were recently honored with awards from the Writing, Rhetoric, Digital Studies Program, um, WRD, acknowledging them as um, community, well, UK community writers. And uh, Brian's song selection, uh, Writing Paper Blues, made me think... What, what what kind of environment do you all create for yourselves when you're when you're writing? Do you have music you like to work to? 
a different maybe there's different phases or is it just you're very very you work in quiet best or just like like in a yeah. like isolation room I, I yeah I, I can't have any noise really, <laughs> really? No, no, no. and if I hear other people typing in particular that really bothers me so I yeah, but the funny thing is I like to be around people and I feel like I do my best writing when I'm at a coffee shop so really? that can be problematic um, and so what I tend to do is because <laughs> they're not quiet right, what I what I often do is is go to public places with earplugs and write oh. yeah <laughs> it's a little so, ritual that's yeah, neat it's, yeah it's, it's it's kind of funny. I, I I feel that I'm more on task when other people around me, people I don't know, you know, mm-hmm. not, they don't care what I'm doing, but right. it feels like they might. And so, um, so I am more focused when other people are around me, but I just can't deal with their noise. And so, right. yeah, so I wear earplugs, especially they're typing. Places. Right. <laughs> exactly. That is that is a troubling sound, other people, especially when it's angry typing. You know, there's some, some, some people are very loud. They are. Yeah. Yeah. Ty, how about you? Do, are you a silent worker? I like to have silence too. Do I you? Think. Um, if I'm, if I'm kind of formulating my ideas and maybe taking some notes, I, I also like to go to the coffee shop. Mm-hmm. And sometimes I will go to the, um, I guess, the second floor of the student center where they have the big windows that, that overlook the yard. Mm-hmm. I stole that spot from a colleague and friend of mine, though. I think he's kind of annoyed that I took <laughs> spot. But we're both going to be um, place pretty soon because I think... Oh, the student yes. center will be shut down, oh. so I'll have to go to the dungeon with you guys. I guess, yeah, right. Um, but, we, can all, we can all be miserable down there. Yeah. Right. <laughs> if I'm really right, writing, yeah, concentrating on writing, I, I do like to have a quiet, too. So actually this week I've kind of isolated myself at home in my office there because I'm writing a grant proposal that's due tomorrow, and I might have the writing blues, too. Right. <laughs> so, um, so, yeah, I kind of don't like too much distraction. Mm-hmm. I, you know, I like coming to work, too, and being around other people, which is the advantage of coming to campus, but invariably people want to stop in or ask me a question, sure. which, you know, I want to yeah. engage with them. But it, I think the distraction is um, problematic because once I get in the groove of thinking about things, I like to just continue with that thought. Mm-hmm. It takes me a while to kind of get back in the groove if I get distracted. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, so that makes sense. Maybe that's a good tip for some people. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I also find that, um, I, I don't know, it, it's so funny how it, it doesn't feel like my way of writing makes much sense but I also <laughs> find I need to move around to different places I can't yeah. I'm not a creature of habit I can't just have my home office and only work there mm-hmm. um, I have to work at the kitchen table and at the dining room table and <laughs> sitting on the couch and, so and even a, within your home even within my home oh, wow. I have to change places and then mm-hmm. go to the coffee shop do you know come to my office I have to do mm-hmm. many different places I don't know if it's I'm trying to trick myself into you know thinking I'm doing you know, I don't know, something social. I don't know oh, what right. it is, but I just, um, <laughs> you're yeah, I have circulating to yeah. as if you're socializing. Yeah, right? I, get, I get that. Yeah. yeah, it's a change of pace sometimes, and maybe a change of scenery kind of can maybe spark some thoughts yeah. in a different way. Yeah, yeah. get you out of a rut. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And Ty, for you, as a chair of a department, I'm sure. You know, your your office is a place where people are frequently stopping by. You know, it's probably hard mm-hmm. for every faculty member on campus to work in their offices because students can pop by or colleagues can pop by. But um, we, you might all yeah. be out in little secret 
places all over town <laughs> trying to get well, your right I, Yeah, we have, our, we have our secret spots. And, uh, <laughs> You've her, already outed one of your own. It's calling out of it because it's gonna be, going to be shut down. Right. <laughs> um, yeah. I have a colleague who's another department chair, and he only comes to work to campus once a week. It is, oh, wow. So, that's his trick. Um, you just have to isolate yourself. I mean, mm-hmm. it's, it's part of what I still do. I'm not a career administrator. I mean, first, a professor. Sure. Yes, absolutely. And um, I just have to, you know, write my papers, and in, in my case, also grant applications, mm-hmm. because we have a lot of... Um, Expectation and pressure to have funding for the work that we do. And for some of the work that we do, we need funding. Um, so, yeah, I need to find a new spot. I guess I could try Pazos, but <laughs> if I have one Pazos? beer, then it's gonna, it will be all over. Yeah, it seems, seems like a yeah. slippery slope. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah that's, that can't end well. No. <laughs> <laughs> the grant might look very different yeah, after, right. after this that. This is true. And so you all are writing different genres then as well. There's the, mm-hmm. the grant proposals. There's fellowship applications, I'm sure, as well, or had been in the past. And, mm-hmm. you know, um, recommendation letters and job letters mm-hmm. when you're on the market and as well as your own research. Mm-hmm. So tell us a little bit about the work that you were honored for from Word, the particular projects. Shannon, do you want to tie? Shannon, well, <laughs> Shannon points to tie. So. <laughs> um. As I understood, it really had to do with my work in the area of rural health mm-hmm. research and also a little bit more specifically within that field in the area of addiction health services research. Yeah, okay. So for all of my career, almost every every research project I've been involved in has really pertained to rural residents in some manner. And I think some of this is just by um, happenstance and where I grew up and also where I've worked. Um, I grew up in a rural community in Kansas and um, remember having to drive to Wichita to go see the um, a specialist for my allergies and things oh, like yeah. that. <laughs> so these issues, and a lot of these types of yeah. issues that I experienced as um, myself or my family members I'm interested in in terms of access to healthcare mm-hmm. and, um, and the quality of healthcare. So um, you know, I started off my career, well, I went to graduate school at Iowa, which, of course, has a lot of rural areas, and then um, started off my career at Texas Tech University in West Texas. And then I'm here at Kentucky, and, and all, the, all of these places, um, institutions, have had an um, interest in rural health because of their locations, and I continue that today. So most of my work is based on population-based studies, um, that are rather epidemiological in their study design, but instead of focusing on things like um, disease or mortality, I'm really interested in consumers' perceptions of their access to Mm. medical care, um, or in the case of persons who are using or abusing alcohol or drugs, their access to um, substance abuse treatment. Because we still have lots of problems Lots of persons in the United States still have problems getting access to care, especially um, oceans. Rural residents still have problems, although their problems are not as um, severe as they used to be. Mm-hmm. And the, really, these days, the the similarities between rural and urban residents are are um, um, pretty um, pretty obvious. They're they're more similar than they are different. But in the case of addiction. Uh, 
most people never get treatment and they uh, have really a lot of barriers in terms of accessing treatment if they make the decision to try to do so. Mm-hmm. Does your work involve field work? Do you interview subjects? Or yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. So when we do these population-based studies, we um, collect information through in-person interviews. Um, in the case of persons who use um, alcohol or drug use, or in, in some of my research, we conducted telephone interviews mm-hmm. of individuals. Of course, that's more difficult these days because there's so many people just not wanting to answer their phones and, and answer questions. Mm-hmm. But all the work I do involves collecting information using structured interviews of um, individuals about their health and health care. And then recently, or more recently, in a large, uh, or at least large for me, NIH-funded study that I conducted when I was in the faculty at Arkansas, we, in addition to doing structured interviews of cocaine users, we also did some qualitative interviews, which really helped to add to the the context of the issues surrounding drug use and access to treatment, um, especially, you know, for people who haven't used cocaine or haven't become yeah. addicted to mm-hmm. cocaine or other drugs. I think it's hard for us to really understand why people get started and um, why they may have quit and start using drugs again and things like that without really asking more nuanced questions through qualitative interviews. Mm-hmm. So that has been a, um, um, a learning experience for me. I didn't do that, that piece of the project myself, but I learned from others, um, a colleague in sociology and also anthropology, about the um, qualitative nature of, uh, and benefits of that type of work. So your work is, is very collaborative. Yes, um, especially if you're working on a larger project, and it, um, you know, for for that particular project, I worked with somebody who had expertise in biostatistics, somebody who was from sociology, oh, wow. somebody from anthropology, yeah. and um, we had a number of research staff members. So um, it has to be collaborative if you're addressing these very complex issues mm-hmm. related to. Um, drug use or access to care. Yeah. Health, it's, you know, the constructions of health are very interdisciplinary as uh-huh. well. You know, we tend to think of it as a medical medical thing, but it, there's so many other influences upon our understanding of health that it sure. sounds like your work really explores. Yeah, a lot of my work, I think, is a bit more um, sociological sure. in nature, which, yeah. which blends over to... Um, um, Shannon's department and area of, of expertise. Yeah. Well, let's have a cliffhanger then to get to Shannon's okay. work, and we'll take a short break. And when we come back, we'll hear about your project, Shannon. Everybody, come on down. The one and only Glenn Campbell here on WRFL 88.1 Radio Free Lexington. That's Wichita Lyman, and I played that for Ty um, since he's from rural Kansas. And he mentioned, mentioned Wichita so ever briefly that he had to go into town. Um, but I, I clung to it for what it was worth, and I'm not, and I'm not turning back. <laughs> it was your opportunity. It was, it was your door. Yeah. Well, so, uh, yeah, let's pick up where we left off there just a minute ago. Okay, yeah, welcome back to Office Hours here on WRFL. We're here with Shannon Bell and Ty Borders, and before the break we were talking uh, with Ty about his research into rural health and the interdisciplinary nature of his work, and we're going to pick up with Shannon, um, who has also 
some connection with with rural health as well. Your work overlaps with yeah, that. Yeah. So, so my research now really doesn't. Okay. I mean, it's <laughs> rural, yeah. but um, but I was going to say um, kind of a funny connection. I before um, before I went to get my PhD in sociology, I actually after right after undergrad um, worked in rural health care for five years doing community organizing around public health issues in a rural coal mining town oh, in, wow. um, in southern West Virginia. And that's actually where um, a lot of my research started, um, was just some of the observations that I made doing the work I was doing and the, and the challenges that I faced um, doing this community organizing work um, in an area where um, people's health was not only determined by um, by their social location in, in, in this community, it was also determined by um, environmental pollutants mm-hmm. that they were experiencing from the coal industry. Mm-hmm. Um, I was working in Cabin Creek, West Virginia from 2000 to 2005, and that was right around the time when mountaintop removal mining was really taking off mm-hmm. um, in, in a lot of southern West Virginia. And um, I would the the people that I worked with, um, you know, they were negatively affected by um, by pollutants from the coal industry, from um, from safety hazards from overweight speeding coal trucks. Um, mm. There were also wow. um, problems with flooding from mountaintop mm. removal mining. Um, while I was there, there were two. They called 100-year floods. That um, what's a 100-year flood? Just just every just the idea years. that like it's such a big flood <laughs> oh, that it, would, I it see. only happens every hundred years. Well, I it see. happened. Two of them happened within the course of ten months oh, in wow. southern West Virginia. And so, um, so yeah, I, I really saw that um, that my job working in, in rural health was um, was difficult for a lot of reasons, and one was this huge power that was um, influencing people's lives, and there wasn't really much that could be done about it. Mm-hmm. And so, um, so it actually, that, um, the frustrations that I, I felt, and that, and also, it was also difficult because um, most of the people I worked with were, in private, were very willing to say that they really didn't like what was going on with the coal industry, they wished mountaintop removal mining wasn't happening, um, they were against what the coal companies were doing, but the instant I tried to connect them with some of the environmental justice groups that were trying to um, were trying to stand up on behalf of rural communities, they didn't want to have anything to do with it um, because there was a lot of fear of uh-huh. retaliation. Sure, um, and so people really a lot of people felt like they didn't have a voice, didn't um, and and feared for um, you know for their safety and yeah. feared for you know that their homes might be taken away from them because mm-hmm. a, a number of people. Um, mm didn't own the property that their house was sitting on. Um, oh. It was owned by absentee landowners. And so there was just a lot of, um, a lot of social control. Mm-hmm. And yeah, very, very vulnerable. Um, and so when I went to grad school, I actually did my PhD in Oregon. Um, and that was 2005 when I started. Um, and, and like I said, you know, mountaintop removal mining had really started taking off in those five years from 2000 to 2005. And in 2005, um, there was a lot of um, media attention that had been brought to mountaintop removal mining, and a number of documentary mm-hmm. films started coming out around that time. And so, even though I, you know, went to Oregon, didn't really intend to, you know, to make West Virginia and make Appalachia my area of, of study, it just um, it just kept coming back to me. And so, I I, I returned every summer to do field work. Um, do a number of research projects related to the social impacts of the coal industry. And um, my first book, which just came out in 2013, 
Um, it's titled Our Roots Run Deep as Ironweed, Appalachian Women in the Fight for Environmental Justice. Um, that book really started, um, or the interviews for it started while I was in doing my field work in graduate school. And so mm-hmm. uh, I, it's focused, the book is focused on the lives um, and struggles of 12 environmental justice activists, women, um, who are from, most of them are from West Virginia. There's, there's one from Eastern Kentucky, Terry Blanton. Um, but these are people who grew up and spent most of their, lo- their lives in the coal fields. So they're individuals who have had to fight that conflicted identity as someone who is um, standing up against an industry that likely put food on their tables yeah. at some point in their lives. Um, and so the book really highlights these individuals and their, um, their activism and the challenges they faced um, to speaking out, um, the successes that they've won, and um, really just some pretty heart-wrenching stories of, of mm. how their lives have been um, affected by, by this industry that has so much power in the region. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, and a lot, of my, a lot of my other research kind of builds on, um, on that type of work. Mm-hmm. And you said at the beginning when Brian asked about the, the, qu- the questions about writing and its, and its import, you talked about telling people's stories and sharing, giving voice to people's stories. And, um, and it sounds like that's what you just described reminded me of, of, of that. And, um, and what it seems like these voices go even further the, as you've gotten more and more accolades for the book, right? There, you've received some various awards for it in the, the um, two short years it's been out, right? <laughs> Would you tell us more about, about the, some of the success of the book? Sure, She's so. blushing a little bit. So <laughs> sorry, I'm, I'm embarrassed here. So, um, so yeah, the, the book um, last year won the Association for Humanist Sociology Book Award, um, it was also a silver medal r- winner for the Nautilus Book Awards and was a runner-up at the Green Book Festival. So, um, and yeah, and it, I mean, what you just said about it, th- those awards allowing it to the voices yeah. to travel f- farther, you know, is, is really important um, and is, is something that, you know, I really feel like these awards are, are the women's awards, you know, they, yeah. it's their stories. And, um, and I'm just really excited that, that people have read this book and that um, that the word is getting out about mm-hmm. what's going on mm-hmm. in, in these rural communities and um, you know and what what people can do when they um, rise up against powerful interests because it can be really intimidating to mm-hmm. um, to do that and and so I think you know these women's stories are really an inspiration hopefully to you know because these these stories are um, are individual stories, but it's it's really representative of of what is going on across sure. the United States, not just um, with the coal industry, but with any powerful um, corporate interest that is extracting a resource or or producing um, you know something and, and making profit from it. Typically, there are people who suffer because of it, mm-hmm. and um, and the fact that there are people who are brave enough. To, uh, to stand up um, and fight back is, is really important, mm-hmm. important for other people to see. And have they, have they, um, did they read drafts of your, of your manuscript? They what did. was their involvement? Yeah, in? so, so the way the book is structured, um, I, you know, it, I'm a sociologist and this is an, ac- this is an academic book. And so I did, you know, include some theory, but I tried to front end it and back end it. And so the um, introduction and the conclusion are kind of where my, um, scholarly voice, mm-hmm. is, I guess you would say. In the middle, eleven chapters um, are are edited 
um, transcripts of my interviews with the women. It, my voice is taken out, um, so see. that it's just a it's a um, you know a narrative of like they're telling their story. Um, but I I kept their words. I used their words. Um, occasionally, there's some. Um, there needed to be some contextualizing details, and so I those are in a different font, so you can tell that it's my voice mm-hmm. and contextualizing details. Um, but yeah, I wanted this book to be um, to contribute to the feminist project of democratizing the research process. And so um, when we, as academics, you know, we often go and um, and and extract stories from other people, um, and we kind of get to to decide how those stories are used mm-hmm. and how those stories are told. And so I wanted this book to be a way to um, provide a way for the the people that my interview respondents to be able to participate in in deciding how their stories were going to be represented. And so, um, so yeah, each of the chapters is a cohesive whole, their story, um, and they and I gave them each drafts of of the um, chapter and allowed them to give me feedback if there was you know if there's any part of it they didn't want to include because of course when we do interviews sometimes we say things that we don't Absolutely. really need to say. Right. <laughs> um, so I gave them the opportunity to edit out things they didn't want to say um, or to you know change words that they wish they hadn't said. <laughs> um, sure. You know. Some some of the women, you know, of course, they're getting very fired up about what they're talking about, and sometimes cuss words are flying around. And so I've had I had a few who said, you know, can we take out that and replace it with this? You know, my grandkids are going to read this. You know, so of course, you know, I wanted to respect that. Um, so yeah, I did I did give them the opportunity to read their mm-hmm. chapters. Mm-hmm. Well, this is another good point to to break for our last yeah. our last break. All right. For the end of the hour. So come right back with the last segment of Office Hours. Uh, the powerful voice of Hazel Dickens there uh, with Black Lung. Here on 88.1 and Office Hours and coming down the home stretch, it always goes by so fast. Mm-hmm. Especially when you have good guests, excellent questions, just flies on by. We're, we're sort of pros at this by now, but <laughs> and at the end of the hour, you, we all become pros at this. So, um, so, And as we are looking at the end, I want to give both of you an uh, opportunity to talk about what you're working on now, anything that you want us to be aware of that's coming up for, for either of you. So what's, going on in the co- what's going on in your college? Well, in my college, yeah, we have a lot of things going on in terms of a new educational program for us, getting into undergraduate education and hoping that we can work even closer with our colleagues in sociology and, and, and in our arts and sciences. Um, we're interviewing new dean candidates, so I've been That's busy big. going to luncheons at the Boone Center the last time. <laughs> That's a hard and, um, uh, Things don't really slow down too much for us in the summer. Most of us have 12-month appointments, and as I mentioned, I... I'm working on a grant proposal that's due tomorrow, and a lot of us will be working on proposals over the summer. Mm-hmm. Um, and they, these things take a lot of time to write, and uh, sometimes it gets a little discouraging. Not the writing piece, but just how long it takes to hear back about whether the project is right. funded. It can take about two years to actually get funding if you, wow. if you um, wow. are awarded it, especially by the federal government. Um, so we'll keep busy with that, and um, yeah. And you personally? Me personally, you know, I need to get back to the the things of writing, um, you know, writing some papers that have been on my desk for way too long, I have to admit, <laughs> between taking a few days off to you know, go out to the pool with my kids 
and maybe taking a vacation here and there. Um, but yes, I guess kind of the same thing, just continue through the summer. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so the myth of the, the professor's summer vacation is... is it is, is a bit of a myth. I mean, <laughs> Shannon yeah. said she'll be, you know, doing some research again in, among coal um, miners or in Appalachia. So that's when a lot of people, that's when a lot of people get their research done, yes. yeah. is in the summer. Yeah. And... Um, Especially around here, it's so nice and quiet in yeah. the summer, and you can get it's, into uh, those coffee shops like, with a lot of people. I would like to have a three-month vacation, but it's not really... <laughs> uh, I'm not sure I could, how I could afford to go on a three-month vacation, if, even if I had that much time to take off. Yeah. That's the thing. So. The school year is just so crazy with teaching that this is this is when we get our writing done yeah. is the summer. It's, um, yeah, a big work time. Mm-hmm. Um, so I... I'm working right now on um, kind of the last finishing touches on my second book, which um, will be coming out in the spring, hopefully, with um, with MIT Press. And that book, uh, which is tentatively titled Fighting King Cole, is about the... So while my first book really focuses on the the people who um, who have stood up against the injustices related to coal extraction, um, the second book is really looking at why more people don't. Mm-hmm. Stand up, um, and and more generally, um, you know, the, it uses the coal indis- the case of of coal in Central Appalachia as the case study. But this is actually a, a larger question for environmental injustices more generally. Um, in general, when there's an environmental injustice, there are far more people who do not speak up and don't um, fight back than there are people who do. Mm-hmm. And so the book really looks at that question of of why, um, what are the barriers that people face to speaking mm-hmm. out. Um, so I'm wrapping that up, and then then the other project that I'm starting right now, um, I'm starting with I'm working with an undergraduate research assistant, Caroline Engel, who's wonderful, <laughs> um, and we are um, looking at the the resistance movement against the bluegrass pipeline um, that was successfully stopped um, last year, um, and it was a pipeline project that was going to carry. Um, natural gas liquids, or NGLs, which are different than um, than just regular natural gas. Natural gas liquids are the byproducts of natural gas extraction and are extremely toxic and extremely explosive. Um, and there was a pipeline project that was going to go through um, central Kentucky. Mm-hmm. And so we're, we're right now doing interviews with folks who, who successfully stopped the pipeline. Um, and there's another proposed pipeline um, that Kinder Morgan is is working to repurpose um, a already in existence pipeline. So so we're hopeful that some of the lessons from the from the Bluegrass Pipeline project will be able to be transferred to um, to this new pipeline project. Mm-hmm. And the you described your first book as academic as an academic book as academic writing. Is your your second book I would assume is. Also, this. Academic? Yeah, I mean, I guess my first book is a crossover. It really, uh-huh. I, you know, I, I said, you know, because I'm an academic, I do have, yeah. you know, I, I, it is published with an academic press, and it does have some academic theory in it. But I, I wanted it to be a, a book that could also be read by the general public, and mm-hmm. and um, and would be appealing to the general public and to policymakers because I, you know, my vision for this was. You know, for for people to be able to just extract chapters from this book, the stories of of these women, and be able to share them with policymakers mm-hmm. or with with other people with political power. Um, so so that book really is geared towards a, a general audience. Um, 
My second book is um, is actually a little bit more academic. Um, it's I think it will be useful for um, social movement organizers for people who are trying to organize against okay. um, against in, you know environmental injustices, but also other academic social movement scholars mm-hmm. will will find it interesting and hopefully some students too. You know, sure. people will assign it in their classes. But um, but you know, I do in the projects that I do. I always kind of try to have have it not just be for an academic audience, yeah. but be something that can be useful. Um, like I said, with my second book, be useful for, for organizers, for social movement organizers mm-hmm. and, and people who um, are working on the ground with yeah. with communities. That crossover, like you said. Mm-hmm. And, and Ty, your work is academic. The writing that you do is academic, of course, as academics. That's mm-hmm. what you're supposed to do. But you also use these different fields that have mm-hmm. different kinds of, of ways of writing for academic audiences. Mm-hmm. Do you have any, any wishes to write mm-hmm. in a different kind of model if, 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 you're, if your topic or field sort of allowed? You know, so most of my papers are really based on um, <clears throat> um, original studies, and I do enjoy the scientific nature of, I mean, I'm a social scientist, but still the, the scientific nature of what I do and um, so th- that piece of it I like. Although I would, you know, I think it would be fun to write a, a book based on some of the work I and others have done. For, for example, in the, in the field of rural health, which we don't really have anything right now. It, the only text I can really um, think about is probably 25 years old. Mm. It's just, um, you know, it's hard to find time these days. Yeah. I think some disciplines reward and value books more than others. Yeah. And our, dis- you know, public health, I think with the um, expectation for grant funding, it places a lot more emphasis on the scientific research and not the larger body of work that we could write about in a book, mm-hmm. but that's a bit unfortunate because I think the field can really benefit from um, some more comprehensive books as well as textbooks. I mean, there hasn't been a lot of innovation on, on the textbook side either in our field in, in past memory. Mm-hmm. So. Um, I'd like to do that if I can figure out a way to do it. I guess it's one of those things where I would just have to make time for it, you know, at some point. Yeah, find another isolation zone yeah. for yourself. And then in my case, I also edit an academic journal, which takes quite a bit of my time. Yes. And I, I enjoy that. because I try to make sure that we get the best um, science and knowledge out there in the field of rural health. It's And... Um, um, I take pride in that, but again, that's I spend like, quite a bit of time doing that. Mm-hmm. So there's only so much time, you know. Absolutely, and, you know. <laughs> there's always so much to be done in that mm-hmm. time too. And as soon as I go home, my daughter wants to play games with me. So <laughs> I, uh, that seems like up. a worthwhile yeah. use of your time. Yeah. Well, we have reached the end of our hour together. Thank you both for being Thank here, you. Shannon Bell and Ty Borders. It's a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. Us. It's been a lot of fun, and this is our our semester swan song and uh, my farewell episode. It's so sad. Yeah, I'm retiring from radio. Thank you so much <laughs> for your uh, amazing semester at the mic. Well, thank you, sir. Uh, wonderful job. Thank you. It's and been a you lovely endeavor. We'll go on to big things as you <laughs> uh, start your role as 
faculty member. That's right. Not here. Not but here. In places abroad. No. <laughs> places colder. Yes. Colder and <laughs> north, more north. But uh, thank you all for, for joining us for the semester of office hours. And keep your eyes open for us, your ears open for us in the fall. Yep. Yep, and uh, play one more song, a, uh, a good old uh, revolution standard for for Shannon's work. So. <laughs> Great, awesome. We're on our way out. Great, happy end of the semester, everyone. Office Hours is produced in cooperation with WRFL and the College of Arts and Sciences at the University of Kentucky. This broadcast theme song is Sandu, performed by Hugo Drupi Contini and provided by the Free Music Archive. Thank you.